Please open your Bibles to James chapter 3. Let's read together. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, <clears throat> for you know that we, will, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. <clears throat> for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, <clears throat> And we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by, small, uh, by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze, by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire cause of life, and, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For the same mouth, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevines uh, produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. <clears throat> we enter a new section this morning, and uh, it's going to be a weighty passage for all of us. Before we get there, you may have noticed by now that there is an interconnectedness that runs through the entire book of James, or at least until where we are. Trials are not independent episodes without a purpose. James reminds us that the momentary afflictions that God gives is for a purpose. He matures his people through it. James, throughout this book, has been building upon previous thoughts. He reminds us, as he gets to chapter 1, verse 18, that it is God, by means of his word, that gives life. That is the key verse thus far. It is the, the, the hinge upon which everything else swivels. So then, if God gives life, he also then imparts the capacity to this new life. He who gives unregenerate sinners and unbelieving, ungodly individuals new life also gives them the capacity to live in this new life. This towering verse, verse 18, stands up above the rest of every, every other verse in this book. 
Because every avenue, every side road, every narrow little nook and hook in this book points back to that reality. If God gives life, then God also expects what? A new walk in this new life. For this reason then, James questions the validity of faith that does not measure up to the standard of life that God expects of the people that is given life to. Faith that wants to escape trials is questionable. Faith that blames God for temptation is questionable. Faith that discriminate is questionable. Faith that is untouched by the needs of the saints is questionable. Now, James draws attention to the tongue. Faith that does not speak in a way that honors God is questionable. It is interesting that in verse 19, if you just look at James 1.19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Look down at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious or has a kind of worship that God receives and does not bridle his tongue, but sorry, and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person religion is worthless. A person that has an uncontrolled tongue has a suspect worship and therefore a suspect faith. So James has already laid down the seeds of what he will speak about in chapter 3. In chapter 2, he's already hinted at suspicious speech. Thus far in this book, James has already shown that the use of words that stands in contradistinction to saving faith is not a faith that is from God. True and saving faith will be evident on the lips of God's people. James's concern for the use of the tongue in this chapter and the following chapter is that there would be a sustained pressure on the child of God as he considers his own heart and how his tongue is used. So in chapter 2, James showed us the importance of works In chapter 3, James shows us the importance of, what do you think it is? Words. That's easy to remember. Now, as we walk into chapter 3, let me give you a bird's eye view of this passage. And I normally do this as we enter a new section. I'll give you an overview of it. And then I'll slow down in the following weeks and break it down into smaller sections. In in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, there's attention given to the teachers and the tongue. Originally, I uh, titled this um, sermon, So You Want to Teach? Think again. And I changed that because um, it's a bit snarky. But anyway, verse 3 to 12 um, deals with four descriptions of the tongue. And I'm going to give you a bit uh, outline and I'll, I'll, I'll refine it as we go on. Um, number... I said four, I meant three. Three descriptions of the tongue. The small and powerful tongue, verse uh, 3 to 6. The destructive and untamable tongue, in verse 3b to 8. The inconsistency of the tongue, verse 9 through 
to 12. And that's where we're going. So you have a big picture overview of what James is talking about. Why the tongue? Why does James not say the heart? And he mentions tongue and mouth quite often in chapter 3. It's a good question. Why, why the tongue? So in Hebrew thought, the component or the member of the body is sometimes highlighted to show the depravity of the entire person. For instance, listen to Romans chapter 3, 13 through to 15. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, asps is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Then it doesn't end there. Then it says, their feet are swift to shed blood. So what actually sheds blood? It's the hand, right? Because with a hand you strike or you burn down. So it's not the feet that is actually in view, but it shows the totality of mankind that every aspect, every member of his body is affected by the fall. Therefore, Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned. And because of that, we are subject to the wrath of God. Our fallenness is seen in the individual components of the body. So it's no different with the tongue. We lie easily because of the state of our hearts. It is self-deceiving and deceived. The heart is the expression of our fallenness, but it is seen in the use of our tongue. So James here uses the tongue to speak about the person. And you will see that later on. If there is anything that will reveal our heart as it is, where we are in our day, it is our tongue. There is no better place to reveal the nature of the heart than looking at the use of the tongue. One author said, that the tongue is the temperature gauge of the human heart. I love that. You know where you are, measure your tongue. This morning I will begin part one of two, which will deal with the teacher and his tongue. There's a very clear break in verse 1 and 2, and you could see it by, the me by means of uh, two conjunctions. In the middle of verse 1, it's a little conjunction. That we who teach, and in the beginning of uh, verse 2, for we all stumble. And that two conjunctions separates the two ideas. So number one is this. The outline for the next two weeks will be as follows. Don't become teachers. Because you will be judged more strictly. Number two, don't become teachers because we all stumble. Now It seems pretty simple, but this is anything but simple. It's not a complex uh, sentence that is put together, but the weight 
And as a teacher myself, I feel already the weight of this passage without having started to preach it to you because having spent some time in this passage over the last few weeks, I feel the pressure. And I hope you do too as well. There is a crushing but purifying weight as we consider the tongue. So number one, let's consider what James means in verse one. Don't become teachers because you, as a teacher, will be judged more strictly. So my approach this morning is going to be slightly wider than I normally go in, in uh, preaching through James. So I'm going to touch on a variety of different topics because James touches on it. And he doesn't need to explain it. I do because we are not all on the same page. So I'm going to cover various topics in verse 1, and then hopefully by the end of it, it should, be, uh, it should make sense. Uh, next week, I will stick a little bit more closer to the text. In verse 1, we have two clear com- components that is raised, uh, raised in this verse. Firstly, we see the task of teachers, and then we see the testing of teachers. The, the, the first part, the task of teachers, it is found in the first elements uh, of this verse. Now, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know, that that is the first part, for you know, second part, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Clear separation and identification of two parts. So what is the task of teachers? The command is very clear. Literally reads this way, and I'm going to sound a little bit like Yoda, Is it Yoda? Yes, the green thing. Not many teachers you must become. That sounds cool that way, so put it in there. The point is pretty evident, though. Don't become teachers. Not everybody should be a teacher. The word should in the English translation is a little bit soft. The the weight of this negation is actually more like don't become teachers. Or you must not become teachers teachers. This doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to be teachers. It just means that certain people who don't have the gift of teaching should not ascend to the position of a teacher. The sense of this verb become in the beginning of this one, not many of you should become or don't become teachers, highlights either that they were chosen to be teachers in the passive or they place themselves In the position of teachers, they actively pursued it and became it. That is the middle. Either way, wherever you fall on this, the self-promoted teacher or the selected teacher, James says, don't do it. Don't become it. Do not many of you become teachers. Here's what I want you to think about. When you hear this command, do not many of you become teachers, what are you immediately thinking of? Maybe I should ask it this way. Who are you immediately thinking of? Pastor, teachers? Yes, right? That would be the normal understanding of this text. And that is often how it is taken. I don't believe that that is what James means, though. Verse 1 is, yes, out of place. It doesn't seem to fit the rest of the book or even the rest of the flow of the, the, the text because he starts with this word. I'm going to give you a Greek word. It's didaskaloi um, from where you get um, didactic from. 
one who teaches, one who gives instruction, and that is the sense here. It is mentioned without explanation, so I have to take the time to explain to you what the teacher is and who the teacher was in James's mind. It is important to note that James is not talking to teachers, but about those who desire to become teachers. More specifically, he is highlighting the position and function of teachers. Often, and in many commentaries and even in study Bibles, you will see that it says that he's addressing church leaders. But that is not true. You will know that the rest of the passage in the greater scope of things is directed to the saints. My brothers, for instance, is a plural, wide scope address, not just pastors. In verse 11, he says again, uh, not verse 11, verse 10, at the end of verse 10, my brothers, these things ought not to be so, ought not to be so. What is he talking about? People are not supposed to talk like this. Christians are not supposed to talk like this. In chapter 4, verse 13, uh, is it verse 13? Yeah. He says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a a town and spend uh, a year there and trade for profit. Yet you do not know uh, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Who's that directed to? The entire church. You can go back to chapter 1 and start reading again. It is directed to the entire church. Church, there is no passage in this book that is directed to elders or pastors. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, chapter 5. Is anyone suffering among you? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone of you sick? Let him call for the what? Elders of the church. Surely that should be then. Elders, as we understand elders. Well, by now you should know that this is a very early book, right? I've explained that many times over. In Acts chapter 6, what is the um, first thing that we note about the corporate structure of the church? Who do we have as leading the church? Apostles. Who did the apostles appoint to help out the church? Slaves or servants or deacons, as we know it today, the proto-deacons. There's no mention of elders as such. Acts chapter 13, we find apostles and teachers. No yet, no mention yet of elders. Acts chapter 11 is the first mention of of elders, but not in the position as a teaching elder, but those who received gifts and disseminated the gifts. You know where the first official position of a presbyteros, an elder, a teaching overseer, is actually mentioned is in Acts chapter 20. That is way later where the official position is actually mentioned. So up till Acts chapter 15, where uh, it's the Jerusalem Council, that is about AD 49, up till that stage, we don't have elders as we know it in the church. We have apostles and we have teachers. And some try to make the argument that the teachers are the pastors. 
No, you didn't need pastors because you had the apostles. They took care of the church in a ruling capacity. So, this book takes place somewhere between chapter 8 and chapter 15. Why? Because at chapter 15 is where the Gentiles get added into the church. At this stage, there is no Gentiles in the church. So I should say there are no Gentiles in the church. So, what does he mean then by elders? And what does elders mean in the early stages of the church? It was probably because of the Jewish concept of the elder, the senior man in the, in the congregation, because the word congregation does not necessarily mean church. So in the group of people meeting together, those who were older and wiser was, was given, were given the responsibility to take care of the financial aspects and then give it to the deacons, those who were supposed to serve the church so that they would disseminate both the food and the finances. The official task came way later. So when he says here, teachers, James is not thinking pastor-teacher. Paul mentions the connection between pastor-teacher. But James is speaking about the function of a teacher. The, the teaching Duty without the office of a pastor. See, this command only seems out of place when we think of it in terms, in terms of a pastor teacher. But it makes absolute sense when James says this to the entire congregation, don't many of you become teachers? Another historical element that we need to keep in mind as James mentions this word, didaskaloi, is the very Jewish nature of this setting. Teachers had a very prominent role in the synagogue. And you know by now that chapter 2 indicates that they are meeting in a what? Synagogue. Who were the prominent teachers in the synagogue? It was men. Don't put your hand up. It was men who were teaching in synagogues. Generally, what happened is that there were the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, and they were held in very high esteem in the Jewish populace because of their position as teachers, as disseminators of the Torah. So naturally, it would, uh, it would follow that many sought this position. Now, teachers did not actually work for a living. So the responsibility of the congregation was to take care of the teacher. They would go from house to house, and they would be hosted by um, the, the congregation or the people whom they taught. And we see that even today. Pastors don't um, work for a living. They are taken care of by the congregation. Um, now, I don't go house to house, and you don't feed me. Maybe we should do that <laughs> feed us meals, uh, but that's what they did back then. So these rabbis were considered to be wise, and the council was highly respected and desired. And when a teacher uh, was addressed, when they spoke to him, they would call him rabbi, rabboni, or master. And it literally means master teacher or the head teacher. And sometimes in the Gospels, it is just Master. 
This position was a place of prestige and the words had tremendous influence and sway over the lives of the people. James says, in this context where men, and sometimes you don't have to be trained by that synagogue to be able to walk up to the podium and open the Torah. Remember Jesus and Paul? Paul went from synagogue to synagogue, Jewish towns, and he opened the law. Jesus, when he went into the synagogue, just went in and read the law, sometimes taught from it. So anyone could just come up and teach, whether trained or not so trained. This is the kind of informal idea that James has behind this command. So what James is doing here is limiting both the position of the teacher, officially and uh, unofficially, and the function of the teacher. So in saying, don't many of you become teachers, he is in fact protecting what God is starting to develop in a church context. In other words, this function, this act of teaching ought not to be taken lightly. It's not for anyone and everyone to just say, yes, I want to be a teacher and I'm going to ascend to that position of teaching. Now remember this. It is both the official and unofficial aspect of teaching that is in view. So both the rabbi and those who are not rabbis. So both the position and those who are not pastors, teachers, are in view. The weight of this teaching position can be felt as the one who's given the responsibility of being a teacher is given authority over those being taught. So your words is a means to ex, uh, uh, exercise control and authority over. I believe what James has in view with his word didaskaloi or teachers is what Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 12. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Now I know that Paul speaks here of the grace in, in, in terms of the special gifts that God has given to uh, people, and as a result of that, you are not supposed to think more highly of yourself. That is in verse 3, because it's from God. Look at verse 6, having gifts that differ. So in the plural sense, God has given gifts to the church according to the grace given to us. Let that settle in. So gifts are given in accordance with the grace that has been given. So without the grace given, there would be no what? Gifts given. So when grace is given, there's also the impartation of what? The gifts that have been given. This is to the church. And then he says, let us use them. Take note of the identification of these gifts. Prophecy. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's a description of gifts as a whole or as, as, as given to the church, but not the offices. 
What do you see in there? It's the gift of teaching, not the office of a pastor teacher. So gifts, uh, the gift of teaching can be given to individuals without giving them the office of a teacher. That is what I believe James has in mind when he says not many of you should become teachers. These are people who have been given by God. Sorry, these are people who may have the gift of teaching. They are responsible to teach. But those who do not have the gift of teaching, they should not be teaching. You see this working out in Living Hope. We have pastor teachers, Peter Don and myself, and then you have other skilled teachers who are teaching in a variety of different positions or areas, I should say. Uh, Hilton and, and, and Shanton and uh, the 19 other teachers in the Sunday school ministry. Why mention that? Because those are the kinds of people that James is talking about. It's not the pastor teacher that is in view. It is anyone else that desires to take the position or the function of a teacher. He's talking about taking up the task of teaching without ascending to the office of a pastor. So those who have taken the responsibility of saying, yes, I want to teach, you are the people that James is talking about. This command is not limited to the function of teaching, but rather he's protecting the task of teaching in the church of Jesus Christ. It is not for everybody. It is interesting that James does not say not many of you should, should not become preachers. That would be a different thing. But he says teachers. This is written to the congregation. And as a holy says to them, don't, men, don't just sign up to ex uh, exalt yourself or ascend to the place of teaching. All kinds of teachers are in view here. Why is this important? Because the wrong use of the tongue can influence people incorrectly. It can either drive us to follow the Lord or drive us away from the Lord. Our words in our teaching capacity will impact the walk of God's people. First and foremost, what James is going to express is that those who are teachers need to have sanctified mouths. Teachers will affect people positively or negatively. So then, what is this teacher? And I've given you a broad Spectrum scope of what the teacher does, but I haven't actually defined what they do. The teacher is one who gives detailed and a systematic instruction to those who are being taught. It provides, or the teacher provides instruction uh, and methodically imparts the truth with the goal of shaping the world, the mind, the heart, and the actions of the one being taught by the content that is being taught. I think that makes sense, right? So it's not you as a teacher that tries to exercise control. It is the content that you teach that has authority and control over the people being taught. A teacher provides light to the blind, instruction to the foolish, and trains as he would a child. The position is not as important as the task. 
So when you become a teacher, don't think yourself as more important than others. That's Paul's point. Just because you've been given a gift, don't think of yourself as more significant uh, than other people. What are teachers supposed to teach? Titus 2 verse 1. Teach what accords with what? Sound doctrine. Not your own opinion. Not the words of others. Your content must be God's content. Teaching is not to be void of the truth. Therefore, teachers who move outside the guardrails of God's word is not, first of all, God-honoring, God-ordained, or God-glorifying, and will not, as a result of that, profit God's people. So many Christian cash, Christians cash out when it comes to doctrine. Some men think it's not for me. Yet, God expects us to be taught sound Doctrine. Why is this important? Because false doctrine introduced in the church of Jesus Christ will result in false duty. When doctrine wanes, godliness will wane also. Where false teaching enters, enters, their false Christianity will also enter. This is why not everybody should ascend to the position of a teacher. You can look up 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. We will consider that on Wednesday. James is protecting the task of teaching because in the synagogue, as well as in the church of Jesus Christ, teaching has a primary function. It is important to God. It is why, how, I should say, how God equips and edifies and encourages his people. It is through teachers. Now, let's get back to James. Not many of you should become teachers. Well, why, James? This is why. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Don't become teachers because your judgment is harder, stricter. The verb here, you know, literally means to see with your mind's eye. It came to mean to be acquainted with, something that you know because you know it. Right? He just knows because it's been part of his uh, mental uh, knowledge for a long period of time. So in the form that it is used, it's not technically correct to say that it's knowledge that he has had and therefore he, he, um, he has it at the time of the writing. When you know something, you know it. So the form does not really matter in this context. So having received knowledge... And possessing the knowledge at the time of the writing is technically true, but not necessary in this form of the verb. He, the, this audience, the audience here, they know what he's talking about. So what is it that they know? Well, he says that teachers will be judged with greater strictness, greater judgment. What on earth does that mean? Some of you may be thinking, well, I thought we were not going to be judged. Aren't Christians going to escape judgment? Well, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Unfortunately, James does not take the time to explain all these nuances. Presumably, he's already mentioned it to them, or they know it. Because of what Jesus said, or because of knowledge that is present uh, because of the Old Testament. It is not clear why and how they know it. 
But notice in verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Interesting. So are we going to be judged? Well, James says, yes. But then Paul says, we will not be condemned. The word here is katakrima. Um, I've got nothing on that. It's just, it's a compound word. It, it, it's, it has its own lexical rendering, which means its meaning is by itself. And even though it is connected by root to another word, which is in what is in James, its meaning is significant in and of itself. It's an intensified sense than krima, which we find in, um, in James chapter 3, verse 1. This year is both the judgment and the execution of the judgment. Therefore, the word condemn. So it's not just hearing the, the case, but also executing judgment on the case. This is condemnation to the nth degree, being judged utterly. The verdict passed, the execution executed. To be found guilty and to receive the just punishment that goes with that. And Paul says, no, we will not be just in that sense. We will not be condemned like that. So what on earth does James mean when he says that we will be judged more strictly? Well, the word here means basically that a decision has been made. That a hearing is had and a decision has been made, it can have a negative uh, um, uh, explanation. Um, in Jude chapter 14, I believe it's one of those cases where the negative aspect of this word is used, but here it is not. For the unbeliever, there will be an, an uncovering, a revealing of their wickedness, and the net result of that would be condemnation. For the believer, it's an unveiling or a revealing of what they have done. And then either rewarding them for what they've done or withholding reward for what they have done. Does not necessarily mean punishment. That is what James has in view here. We will receive a stricter scrutiny, a stricter judgment. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, in that case, I'm not signing up for any teaching classes. Well, guess what? You don't escape either. Take note of the adjective. With greater strictness or greater judgment, which means if you take the adjective away, what does it say about other people? They will also be what? Judged. We will all be judged. And he knows this, and they know this, and so he says, but you who sign up for the task of teaching, guess what? You sign up willfully to be judged more strictly. In fact, the, the sense of this word at the end here, we will be judged, the future tense, implies that when you take the position and the task of teaching, you take to yourself greater judgment. So what kind of judgment is in view? He alludes to this later on uh, in verse 11 of chapter 4. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who judges against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law. 
but a judge. Verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. So there is only one who will be judged because he's the lawgiver. He's the one who gives the standard. And he's the only one that can rightly judge in accordance with that standard. He is able to save and to destroy. But you, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So he calls the Lord the judge. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 9. I'm going to read from verse 7 onwards because it's connected. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits. So be patient. Wait until he comes. See how the farmer waits. This is how we are to wait uh, for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient, the repeat of the word, because he's trying to express how we are to wait by means of the illustration of the farmer. Um, uh, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Same word, same meaning, same sense. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I don't know if you caught that, but what he said there is what is known as the eschatological return of Christ for his saints, which we call the rapture. The Lord is coming. The, 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 the arrival of our Savior and Judge is nigh, is near. And when he comes, what are you waiting for? As a farmer who waits for the crop, for the blessing that comes with the, the, the season, that is what you're waiting for. He's not only come, coming to... As a judge, but he's coming with a reward. That's the sense that he's giving you. So he's hinted at this in his book. So he's coming to reward his people, but as a judge as well. Now go over to Romans chapter 14. I believe this explains it a little bit more. Romans 14 verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the living and uh, sorry, of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Same idea as James. Or you, why, uh, why do you despise your brother? Same idea as James. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. What is that called? The beamer. That's literally the word. We will all stand before this judgment seat. This is echoed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but I won't touch on that passage. We can look at that on Wednesday. Chapter 5, verse 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, same as Romans chapter 14, so that each one may receive what is due what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is to Christians. So Christians' lives as a whole, as generally everybody, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he will examine our works, he will examine our lives. The idea of the beamer seat comes from the context of the uh, games in uh, Corinth. 
And as a result of that, they would appear before this judgment seat or called the Bema seat. And it wasn't to punish them, but actually to reward them with their crowns and their, their medals. The Bema seat is a place of reward. Now you may be thinking, and we can lash this out on Wednesday, how is withholding the gift from us or the reward from us a reward? Because if the judgment seat is a reward, what on earth? I, I don't want any gifts to be withheld from me. Do we deserve anything? Not in the least. So it is a grace that God does not crush us for our disobedience. It is the grace that you are even able to stand before the judgment seat of Christ without Him slaying you for your continual act of disobedience. There are those who are faithful, and you have been faithful in maybe episodes of your life. And for that you will be rewarded. But for those periods of life where you've wandered away from Christ, where you've disobeyed the Lord, you will have to give an account for that. So no one escapes but teachers. And I hope you listen very carefully. If you are in the position of a teacher and have taken the responsibility of a teacher, all of us, you are giving yourself up to greater intense scrutiny by the Lord our judge. You are doing that yourself. What about false teachers? Well, they too will be judged in accordance with what they teach and what they say. But for you, 1 John 2, I'm going to read this. Think about this. 1 John 2 verse 28. As a believer, for you, and now little children, abide in Him. That means continually to keep abiding in Him. Why? So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Same event. So when he comes, there will be some of us who are, who, is going, who are going to be ashamed. Why? Because we have not been abiding in him. We have not been walking the way that he desires us to walk. Again, this is not judgment in the sense of punishment. Christ will examine our works and will reward us in accordance with our works. What about unbelievers? So there is both a judgment of their works and their words. Yes, that is the unrevealing or the unveiling of who they were throughout their life. God will do that to them. But there is also the execution and the condemnation of those who do not believe Jesus Christ uh, is Lord and Savior. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. And everyone, both great and small, will stand before him who sits upon the throne. And the books were open. And if your name is not found in the book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire, God's word declares. There is a judgment reserved for those who do not believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. But for us who do believe, what James is saying is that there is a time coming where we, we will have to give an account for how we lived. Yes, we will receive rewards, but you will also have to give an account of your life <clears throat> before God. 
I think in 1 Corinthians 4, it's where Paul says that you will not lose your life, but you may lose all rewards will be withheld from you. So if you are a teacher, consider these words very carefully. Not many of you should become teachers. Why? My brothers, you know this, that we who teach will be judged with a a greater strictness. A stricter judgment is the idea. Consider your words very carefully. James is going to elaborate on why we should be very careful not to become teachers. If you are a teacher in any capacity, you need to think about this. If you are gifted in this area, and you are a teacher, you too need to think about this. If you are not gifted, and I know that we have a policy of allowing people to teach in various areas until they find that this is not for them, that is fine. But if you are not gifted and you are remaining in that position of teaching, you are incurring upon yourself greater judgment. It is better to refrain in that sense. The more you teach, the more accountable you become. Luke Timothy Johnson wrote that, quote, speech by teachers before a captive audience provides temptation to virtually every form of evil speech. Arrogance and domination over students. Anger and pettiness at contradiction or inattention when people don't listen to you. You get angry with them. It's not your fault because you're a teacher. It's their fault because they didn't understand. I I was so thankful in... One of my classes, one of the um, professors said, if your audience does not understand what you say, you are not a teacher. (laughs) Yeah, that stuck. (laughs) Slander and meaning towards absent opponents. So you think because they don't come to listen to you, it's it's, it's a sly on you, and so you attack them. Flattery of students for the sake of vainglory. You want that. You want people to think highly of you because you think of yourself as being a greater teacher than you actually are. And so when people criticize you, you attack them. Or you point to others who say, oh, what a good sermon. Oh, what a good teaching. Because you don't want to hear that you were bad. And, and as a teacher, you don't want to hear that. Trust me, <laughs> it's, it's hard. But as teachers, we need to open ourselves up to that criticism. Why? Because we're accountable before God, first and foremost, for what we teach. We don't teach for you. Teachers are teachers before God. And that's why it is such a primary task. If you take it lightly, if you do not take what God Um, requires of teachers very seriously, then you have added to yourself a greater level of judgment. I pray that this would be sobering to us who are pursuing the position of teachers and who are in the position or function of teaching. While you will not lose your salvation, there is great concern for your reward. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of teaching. Thank you for the many teachers that you have provided.
Thank you for the sobering reminder that there is a that we subject ourselves to a greater level of scrutiny and accountability because we place ourselves in the function and position of teachers where the pastors, Sunday school teachers, FOF teachers, or any other kind of teachers in this church. We pray that you would burden our hearts to take the responsibility of teaching very seriously because you take this position very seriously. It is the means through which you speak to your people. It's the means through which you edify your people. It's the means through which you equip your people. So therefore, Lord, those who are not called and gifted teachers by you, we pray that you would remove them. Grant us as leaders wisdom to verify and scrutinize their lives to see if they are equipped to teach. Transform our hearts and our minds that we may not be ashamed at the coming of your Son. Forgive us where we are putting the joys and the attractions of this world ahead of you. Where we are not putting in the effort to study the word as you require us to, Lord. Grant grace, uh, not only to us, but also to those who do not know you. That they would be able to escape the great judgment seat by means of calling upon your Son for salvation. We pray for mercy, Lord. We pray that the idea and the reality of future judgment would awaken their sense and their position and condition before you. Thank you again for your grace up till today that you have been so patient with us. Lord, we pray that as this word goes forth that you would continue to mature us. Help us to be mindful of the responsibility that we take to ourselves. Forgive us for being so flippant in taking this position of teaching so lightly, Lord. We pray your grace as we seek to honor you and to glorify you in all that we do. As we give thanks to you now in Christ's name. Amen.